0: Can be dismissed at this time, those who will remain in the sanctuary, please turn to Psalm 65, Psalm 65, Psalm 65, beginning in verse 1. For the choir director, a psalm of David, a song. There will be silence before you and praise in Zion, O God. And to you the vow will be performed. O you who hear prayer, to you all men come. Iniquities prevail against me. As for our transgressions, you forgive them. How blessed is the one whom you choose and bring near to you. To dwell in your courts, we will be satisfied with the goodness of your house, your holy temple. By awesome deeds you answer us in righteousness, O God of our salvation, you who are the trust of all the ends of the earth and the farthest sea, who establishes the mountains by his strength, being girded with might, who stills the roaring seas and the roaring of their waves, In the tumult of the peoples, they who dwell in the ends of the earth stand in awe of your signs. You make the dawn and the sunset shout for joy. You visit the earth and cause it to overflow. You greatly enrich it. The stream of God is full of water. You prepare their grain for thus you prepare the earth. You water its furrows abundantly, you settle its ridges, you soften it with showers, you bless its growth. You have crowned the year with your bounty, and your paths drip with fatness. The pastures of the wilderness drip, and the hills gird themselves with rejoicing. The meadows are clothed with flocks, and the valleys are covered with grain. They shout for joy, yes, they sing. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you. Thank you for beautiful passages like this one that demonstrate your goodness to your people, that demonstrate your kindness and your compassion and the blessing that comes to those who are in Christ Jesus. Father, thank you for the outward signs of blessing that touch all of humanity. Father, may we, and the rejoicing over these point people to the Lord Jesus Christ, even through them, and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So this morning, this psalm's beautiful psalm. It's, it's an exquisitely beautiful psalm. And it starts out in a very odd way, very odd way. It starts out with the notion of both silence. And praise. Both of these together in unison. At the very beginning of the psalm. And so in verse 1. We're going to hang out here for just a few minutes. There will be silence before you. And praise in Zion. O God. To you the vow will be performed. There will be silence. And there will be praise. Now. We've got to figure out how that fits together, because that, that's just weird. Like, I can't be the only one who did the study this week that when you read that the first time, you go, okay, that's weird. How are we going to have silence before you and praise before you at the same time? Because I've never, listen, I've been doing this stuff in, in Christian ministry and community life for a really, really, really long time. And I've been to a lot of different places and a lot of different environments and a lot of different circumstances where they have like, praise gatherings. I've never been to one. They say, hey, we're going to have a time of praise. And everybody just sat there quiet. It's really weird. So what what's going on with this? What, what is David attempting to communicate by talking about silence and praise at the same time. So there's, there's two different pathways that you could go where this makes sense. And it's always a struggle when there's legitimately two different ways that you can understand something and it makes sense to land on which one's right because these two things don't agree with each other and so they both can't be right. But there really are only two ways to understand this. So I'm going to walk through both ways and just tell you where I landed and let you know you don't have to land where I land, okay? That's the beautiful thing about complex passages like this. But here we go. Silence. Let's start with silence because that's what David starts with. Let's start with silence. It could be that David is making reference to the overwhelming reverence that happens when you find yourself in the presence of the Lord. If you've never had a worship experience personally like that, where either you're hearing the word preached or you're hearing confession made or you're hearing songs sung in a corporate setting and you just become overwhelmed with the reverent reality of, of God being with us, God loving us, the incarnational reality of Christ in us, that the only proper response is to be quiet. it's 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 a remarkable thing that can occur. David could be talking about that. And there are other psalms where he makes reference to that. That, 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 that God's people will be silent before him, that they're overwhelmed by his glory and those kinds of things. And so there, that very well could be what David is talking about. Or David could be using the language of silence as representative of judgment. Because all throughout the Old Testament, in a host of places, and it actually carries over into the New Testament as well, when you have this ultimate appearing before God of all mankind, you have those that are praising God because they know they are welcomed into the presence of God as the people of God. And you have those who in judgment fall silent before God. Their voices of opposition against God are finally cut off. And they're mocking and they're scorning and they're, and they're, basically using the essence of part of their divine representation, their divine image, their image bearing that they use to mar the character of God and God's people is now cut off and God's enemies stand silent before him in judgment. Very much could also be that. And just to let you know, because I know some of you will go to like try to research it you got a lot of great people who go both ways with it. Could be one or the other, okay? So then let's move to praise. So there's either a dual type of praise where there's a silent praise and there's a vocal praise. And so this praise could be God's people in silent and or vocal forms of worship, coupling it with silence and the overwhelming presence of God. Or this praise could be God's judgment of the wicked that is accompanied by the praise of God's people for God being a righteous judge, which sounds weird when you say it out loud, but is actually all over the Bible. It's everywhere. I know a lot of you are new. I know a lot of you uh, haven't been here for a very long time, but I I, want to, I want to have everybody just real quick. If you, if you don't want to turn there, that's fine. But, I preached through Isaiah a while back. And one of the biggest complaints besides how long all the sermons were, because they were long sermons, because I didn't want to be in Isaiah for 37 years, I actually wanted to get done with it in my lifetime. And so I had to to squeeze a lot in. Other than the length of the sermons, the biggest complaint and concern I had people express to me, and it's a valid one, was how I ended the series of Isaiah. What people came to me and said was, Philip, that last sermon that ended Isaiah, it just didn't feel like it had a lot of hope. It was like this tension that was left at the end of the sermon series. Well, let's, if you want to, Isaiah 66. Verse 22 For just as the new heavens and the new earth which I make will endure before me, declares the Lord, so your offspring and your name will endure. And it shall be from new moon to new moon, from Sabbath to Sabbath, and all mankind will bow down before me, says the Lord. Now, if we were to stop there, it would be an awesome way to end an encouraging series. However, the Holy Spirit inspired, verse 24. Then they will go forth and look on the corpses of men who have transgressed against me, for their worm will not die, and their fire will not be quenched, and they shall be the abhorrence of all mankind. Turn the page. Guess what? You're in the book of Jeremiah. That's how it ends. And if you were to go back in chapter 65 and 66 of Isaiah and kind of get a feel for what's happening, you see this later in the book of Revelation. What's happening is God is declaring that his people will praise his name for the wrath-filled judgment he pours out on the wicked. There's an entire worship song in the book of Revelation about God's destruction of His enemy represented by Babylon, where, where they see, very much like the language of Isaiah, the corpses of the wicked struck down by the fury of God, and they sing a praise song to God because of that. You say, Philip, I don't like this. You know, I don't like it either, but it's in there. And it very well could be that what David is referencing is the enemies have now been laid silent and we're praising God for his wrath-filled judgment on the wicked. It could go both ways. It really could go both ways. So how do you kind of figure out where you should land? Because I told you where I'm, I'm thinking I sh- should land. You don't have to land there. But how do you kind of get there? What's well, the second part of verse 1 in my mind that helps give us some clarity to what it is that David is talking about? he says after talking about there being silence and praise before god in zion and they seem to be simultaneous they seem to be something happening at the same time he says and to you the vow will be performed normally i don't say this about the nesb not a great translation not a great way to translate what's happening there better way to say it would be the solemn promise will be made complete or will be fulfilled. To you, the solemn promise, the covenantal reality will be made complete or will be fulfilled. This that David is talking about where there's silence and there's praise and the presence of God is talking about the fulfillment of God's covenantal reality. And what is the f- complete fulfillment of God's covenantal reality? It is the death, burial, resurrection, and future judgment as exalted king of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is, God's solemn covenantal promise in time and space, in human time and space, has not been made complete yet. It's an already not yet. It's already happened in God's eternal perspective, but it hasn't fleshed itself out in real time and space. There are still wicked people who still declare wicked things against God. There's still people who need to hear the gospel. There's still rooms where the gospel can be heard. There's still praise to be done. There's still missional realities that can occur in time and space. And so, from a human perspective, God's covenantal reality has not reached its complete conclusion yet. All things have not been made properly new, redeemed, and judged in the glory of Christ. The second coming has not yet occurred. And so, When David throws in, what I'm talking about is your solemn vow, your promise, your covenantal reality is going to reach its completion. That happens, in my mind, when those who have been judged are laid to silence and those who are redeemed sing God's praises for their silence. I think that David is starting this psalm off in a declaration of an eschatological reality of all things being fully completed in the Lord Jesus Christ. I think that's what's happening. You say, Philip, why does that matter? It matters because of what happens next in the psalm. I think the psalm reads better if that's where we land. And so that's why I spent some time kind of hanging out there with those views. Now, the psalm reads great if you read it the other way, and that's fine but i'm going to read it like that and so o oh, you who hear prayer to you all men come or all flesh comes is really a, a better way to say that verse 2 iniquities prevail against me and as for our transgressions you forgive them and that's a fun thing happening there in verse 3 we'll get to it in a second how blessed is the one whom you choose and bring near to you to dwell in your courts. We, David's including himself in that group that was brought near to God, will be satisfied with the goodness of your house, your holy temple. And so God's covenant is completely fulfilled in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Wow, even for Baptists, at least one person should have said amen. But that's okay. It's okay. You're distracted by the game this afternoon, I understand. You hear our prayer. You hear our prayer. The scripture makes it very clear. Hear me this morning. The scripture makes it very clear that God who knows all things, sees all things, hears all things, engages all things, is aware of all things volitionally in some way that we do not comprehend, chooses to not relationally hear the prayers of the wicked. In Isaiah, it talks about how my sin has caused God to hide His face from me, where He does not hear me, He does not see me. It says elsewhere in the Old Testament that the prayers of the wicked are an abomination to God. What is the only prayer of the wicked that God hears? It's the prayer of repentance where they become righteous. And then after that, he hears all of their prayers because they are now covenantal children of the reality of the gospel message of Jesus Christ. And so this flesh is coming. How does this flesh come? Well, it has to come in some way where sin is overcome. And I want you to see what happens. Iniquities prevail against me. Our sin was great and we could not defeat it. Friend, this morning, you can't just turn over a new leaf. You can't pull yourself up by your proverbial bootstraps and try to make yourself better. You can't try to wash yourself off good enough to where God will be pleased with what you're presenting to Him. Your sin, my sin, is ingrained deeply into the heart reality of who we are. We are born into this world as children of wrath. We are born by nature, sons of Adam. We are made into this life as having enmity with God. We stand against the Lord. We do not become sinners because we commit sin. We commit sin in our lives because we were born sinners in full rebellion against the image of the Most High God. God, It is broken and it is marred in us. As David says here, our iniquity, my iniquities prevail against me. I try and I strive and I fight and I claw, and there's nothing in my own strength that I can do to overcome my own sin. It's remarkable that somebody besides the Apostle Paul in Romans chapters 1, 2, and 3 speaks to the total depravity of man. I know that's shocking to some, but it's on every page. We cannot save ourselves. Cannot do it. And so what does David then say? What does David then offer when he's talking about this covenantal reality that needs to be fulfilled so that God can have justice, but God can also be the justifier as the Apostle Paul does speak to in the book of Romans. He says, as for our transgressions, what are we going to do about it? My iniquities prevail against me. I can't overcome it. So as for our transgressions, you forgive them. (sighs) Amen. Praise God. Now, that's beautiful as it is in the English translation. As for our transgressions, you forgive them. That's beautiful. Friend, it gets even more profoundly beautiful when you kind of open it up from the Hebrew a little bit. That word that we translate for forgive is the same Old Testament word that is commonly used for the concept of Atonement. Not just blank check, blank slate forgiveness. But the Hebrew cultural concept of atonement. Which if you were with us during our Leviticus study, you know means there has been some other thing sacrificed for you. That God can look at you and see that you've been covered by blood. So that you are no longer considered guilty. Well, guess what, friends? The blood of bulls and goats in no way can forgive us of our sins. So David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, way outside of his own knowledge and awareness, is speaking to the fact that I have this iniquity that I can't overcome and I have to be covered over by blood. God has to atone for my sins. And in his mind, he may have been thinking about the temple. In his mind, he may have been thinking about the Levitical animal sacrifices. But friends, we know in the great fulfillment of things, he's speaking to the reality of the covenantal fulfillment that is found only in the work of Jesus Christ. Friend, you can't overcome your sin. But praise be to God, Jesus has overcome your sin. He's covered it. With his own blood. And so then. David speaks to the blessing. Of the one whose sin has been covered. By the one greater than him. And listen to how he talks about this. How blessed is the one. Whom you choose. And bring near to you. For the purpose of what? To dwell in in your courts to be part of your kingdom. We will be satisfied with the goodness of your house, your holy temple. And friends, it's not even a stretch. Jesus said, tear down this temple. And in three days, I will build it back up again. And it says in almost a parenthetical commentary in the gospel text, and the disciples did not realize until after he had been raised that he was speaking about his body. I will be satisfied with the goodness of your house. And what is the house of God? It is your holy temple. And what does the New Testament say the holy temple of God is? The person and work of Jesus Christ Himself. I will find full satisfaction in that. And how is the blessed? Look, how are you blessed when God covers your sin with the blood of Jesus Christ? Well, first you're blessed because God chooses you. I know that even in a church like Sylvania, that's super wide open about all of this stuff, that is still a remarkably uncomfortable idea for some people. And you know, sometimes I'm, I'm super diplomatic and I'm really cautious with my words. So I want to try to be really plain and clear today so that there's no confusion. If you are in Christ... It is because God himself and his sovereign wisdom put you in Christ. You, left to the overwhelming power of your iniquity, would have never chosen Christ over your sin. And I know for some of you, because of your past experience, That seems far-fetched because praise God in His sovereignty in your life and His ordering of your life has kept you from profound wickedness. And I say praise God for that. I've, I've, I've said it repeatedly. I love to hear the testimonies of people who just didn't get mixed up in a whole bunch of stuff. And they got saved kind of young and their families led them. To the Lord and they showed them Jesus and they put them in all the environments where the means of grace could take place and God in His sovereign providence called them out of darkness and into marvelous light before they could ever really get mixed up in the darkness too much. Man, that's awesome testimony. So great. And when I hear that from people, like, oh, my testimony is kind of boring. No, it's not. That is wow. That more people will have wonderful testimonies like that. But then there are some of us, notice how I shift it to an inclusive language, who profoundly know how wretchedly wicked and evil we were. And know with all clarity, had God not done some profound, miraculous work in the dark recesses of our stony heart, we never would have even dreamt of following Christ. You have Timothy testimonies where it was the faith of his grandmother and his mother and he got saved as a young man. And you have Paul testimonies where he's on his way to kill some Christians and Jesus just shows up and overwhelms the thing. And you've got all kinds of testimonies in between. But friends, the common theme for all of the testimonies is right here. How blessed is the one whom you, God, choose to bring near to yourself. Friends, you did not pick God. It's not how it works. It's not how it works. That's part of the blessing, by the way. How blessed is the one that this has happened to him? This is not some sort of loathsome doctrine. This is not some sort of ivory tower idea. This is not some sort of theological controversy everywhere in scripture where the concept of the doctrine of election is preached out from the text it is always demonstrated as a blessing to the recipient of the salvation that God gives them you have been richly blessed because God could have left you in your sin and rightly judged you for it and instead he removed your heart of stone and he replaced it with a heart of flesh and he breathed life into your dead corpse and he drew you to himself. Praise be to God. David calls it a blessing. As does the apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter one. The one that God brings near to himself, he doubles down on it And what does he say about being brought near to God? Well, first, you get to dwell in his courts. Friends, listen, when you go into the courts of the king, you can only go into the courts of the king for two reasons. Well, three, technically. But to go into the court of the king must always be by invitation. You don't just get to show up. That's that's in keeping with he drew you near and he's the one that chose you to come. You can stand outside the castle wall or you want to say, I want to see the king. But unless he says you can come in, you don't get to go in. And so if you happen to find yourself in the court of the king by invitation, there's historically three reasons why you get to go into the court of the king. One, you are a welcomed guest slash family member slash citizen of the kingdom and the king has allowed you to come in. That's what David's talking about right here. Two, You're a foreign dignitary. They're going to negotiate business with the king. Never happens with God in the Old or New Testament. Nobody's negotiating. We have one story semi of negotiation. It's from the book of Job. I don't think you want to be that character (laughs) in story. If you don't know who that character is, please go read the first couple of chapters of Job when you get home. You'll see you don't want to be the foreign dignitary trying to make a negotiated plea with God. You don't want to be that guy. Third, you were brought in by the king because he was at war with your people and you have been soundly defeated and he is publicly mocking you in your defeat By having you kneel before him in surrender. The first one and the second one is what David was talking about in verse 1. We have those who have fallen silent. And we have those who are singing praise. The ones who have fallen silent are have yielded in shame. To the defeat that they have suffered at the hands of the king. He's overwhelmed them and judged them and those who are singing praise are welcomed into his kingdom because he's made them citizens of his kingdom and actually, by full extension, members of his royal family, seated in the heavenly places on thrones with Jesus Christ himself. That is a blessing. And notice what you then get to do. You get to be satisfied with the goodness of the house of God. All of the blessings that belong to Christ Jesus now belong to you. Richly blessed. And what are those blessings? I, I'm, I'm glad that you asked. Verses 5 through 13, he just lays out what these blessings look like, or at least some of them. This is not a comprehensive list. But this is a picture in poetic metaphorical terms of the goodness of God to his redeemed people. And so notice here in verse 5, By awesome deeds you answer us in righteousness. Friends, God responds in extravagant ways because his salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ is an extravagant thing. If you look at your Christian life and you view it as boring and mundane, you are not viewing your Christian life correctly. Because the fact that you can claim to have a Christian life is an exceptional thing. Because the king of the universe chose you and drew you near to himself and put you in his courts to enjoy the goodness of his house. And there's nothing boring about that. There's nothing mundane about that. And so it's these awesome deeds you answer us in righteousness. O oh God of our salvation, who are the trust of all the ends of the earth and the farthest sea. In other words, this gospel is not going to be isolated to the time and space and land-dwelling situation that David had. It's going to extend all over the earth. And so what are some of these awesome deeds that God has done? God establishes the mountains By his strength. Now, I'm going to go ahead and say it. That sounds like a really weird salvation blessing. The mountains were established before I got saved. The mountains are established now that I am saved. And if the Lord tarries and I die and I'm waiting for the final future resurrection, the mountains will be pretty established while I'm gone. Mountains have been around for a long time. What a weird blessing to say that God has done to show his covenantal love for his people. That just seems kind of weird. Until you remember that all throughout the scripture, one of the pictures of God's judgment on the wicked is that the mountains do what? Them. And that at the end of it all in the book of Revelation, that's the heart cry of the wicked. Oh, that the mountains would fall on us and we die rather than having to face the wrath of God. The mountains not being established, the mountains crumbling and moving and being cast into the sea and falling down on enemies, and all of the other host of things, the mountain of Sinai, the burning, raging mountain that is the full weight of the law of God that shows us that we are sinners that we can never fulfill, all of these are signs of burden and judgment. But God has established Mount Zion, which by the way, metaphorically, is the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel. And it will never fall. God has established the mountains for us. I don't have to worry about being thrown under the weight of the law and the judgment of God anymore. It's a beautiful metaphor. Notice what it says. It says he stills the roaring seas and their waves and the roaring people. There is a raging in this world that exists, and in the book of Revelation, there's this magnificent metaphor. And there will be no sea, it says. Now, does that mean that the new earth will have no water on it? Probably not. Let's take Revelation for what it is: apocalyptic literature with hyperbolic poetry in it. You know, there is going to be a new earth. It probably is going to have an ocean. I just very likely. So what is he talking about there when he talks about these raging seas and all this and why why would you get rid of the notion of the sea? Well in the Hebrew mindset and the ancient world concept of the, of the mind the sea was this dark dangerous abyss filled place. It was a place of judgment, it was a place of sin, it was a place of the unknown, it was a place of fear. And guess what? None of that stuff's a problem for us anymore. I don't know if you've ever been out in the ocean on a boat when it's calm versus out in the ocean. And not by, I don't mean like on a lake, I'm out in the ocean. One of the first cruises that my wife and I ever took, they sped up, they made an announcement. They said, we're going to be speeding up. We're going to try to arrive early. It's a tropical depression that was forming out in the ocean near our location. And they were trying to outrun it. That's what they were trying to do. Part of it caught up with us in the middle of the night, and I kid you not, friends, we were in our room. And it was sitting on the table, and then it was on the floor, and there was. A, and I had to go outside to check for something, and I went around back. We were right near one of the the pools on the back of the deck, is where we were right on the back of the boat. We were feeling everything because the storm was coming toward. The, we were running away. That's it was hitting us like our room. I think literally our room was impact zone. And so I go outside to go do something I need to do. And I look over the railing at the pool. The pool is creating capsizing waves. Like the water's coming up and folding over. You could have surfed in the pool. It's a five foot deep pool. That's what we were experiencing. You do not want to be on the raging sea. It will kill you. You will not survive. If it's you versus the ocean, the ocean always wins. If it's you versus the judgment of God, judgment of God always wins. If it's you versus the fear of judgment and the wrath of God because of the depth and the darkness of your sin, that always wins unless God calms the sea. It's a blessing. Friends, he's not talking about water. He's talking about the raging that goes on inside of those who've been redeemed. I don't have to rage against this life anymore. I don't have to rage against the consequences of sin. I don't have to rage against the darkness of my heart because the Lord Jesus Christ has calmed the sea within me. Mm. Man, it's good. And the dawn... And the sunset will shout for joy. Every day of the Christian life, no matter what happened in that day from dawn until sunset, every day of the Christian life can be and should be marked by the joy of the Lord. Because your daily circumstances no longer dictate the delight of your heart. Because no matter how good or how bad that day was and circumstances, your day started and ended the same, you were in the courts of the Most High God enjoying His goodness, His holy temple. And so whether it was the worst day you've ever had or the best day you've ever had, it was a day with Jesus and it should be filled with joy. The dawn and the sunset Of all of your days, sing praise to God. It's beautiful. And then in 9 through 10 and toward the end, he talks about this abundance that he supplies. He causes the earth to be watered and to bring about an abundance of food. I love how here at the end... There's just this abundance upon abundance that gets kind of laid out. The pastures of the wilderness drip. The hills gird themselves with rejoicing. The meadows are clothed with flocks. The valleys are covered with grain. And they shout for joy. Yes, they they sing. There's a few different things that are going on there. One is, is that your life truly is that blessed. It doesn't matter your bank account. It doesn't matter your educational level. It doesn't matter your social circumstances. It doesn't matter the persecution that you might face. All of those difficulties that truly do happen in life. You are, if you're in Christ, if you've been chosen by God, if you've been drawn near to him, if he has forgiven you of your sins, if he's covered you with the blood of Jesus, you are richly blessed. But I think it's even more than that. Because we have a dangerous tendency to think, like Elijah did, that we're the only one. There's nobody else. I'm out here all by myself. Oh, woe is me. And the scripture teaches that while not everyone will be saved, the metaphor that's used in the revelation is that I looked out. And this is the ones who are there singing the praise. I looked out. There is the sand of the sea. And like the stars of the heavens. And no man could number them. When God pours out the blessing of his gospel in the world. It's abundance upon abundance. The land is covered covered with the goodness of God because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So how do we close? How do we walk away this morning? The beautiful thing is that Jesus made a a, a reference to this. It's very indirect, but he made a reference to this. God causes the rain to fall on both the righteous and the unrighteous alike. Friend, the world that we live in now, right now, this moment, is superior in every way to any world anyone has ever lived in before in human history. Why? Because it's one more generation that has been living under the blessing of a global reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there are people who are wretched, vile, sinful, God-hating people who are enjoying secondary and tertiary benefits of the gospel even though they could care nothing about God Himself. Our entire existence has been transformed to a general realm of blessing even for those who care nothing About the divine reality. Why? Because the gospel doesn't just change us. It changes the world around us. And when you think about how the church throughout its history has responded to the world. To create a society that reflects the kingdom of God. Because friends that's just it. You can't strive to have the kingdom of God reflected in your own heart and not by extension have the kingdom of God reflected in how you live your life outwardly. And if you're living your life in keeping with the kingdom of God outwardly, it will begin to affect the world around you, either through persecution of you because people will hate what's coming out of you, or transformation of society because the world's a better place when it looks like the kingdom of God. And when you think through the way that the church has done some of these things over the years, the existence of a modern hospital system, the existence of the modern orphanage and adoption type system, the existence of the university and education, the existence not just the hospital system, but modern medical care just in general, all of these birthed out of a compassionate concern for the well-being of the world around them in the gospel. And there are tons of people who enjoy the benefits of this, who care nothing about God. God is causing the rain to fall down on the righteous and the unrighteous alike because that's what the gospel does. The gospel will be a great judgment for some people ultimately, and that is a sad but true reality because God is a just God as we saw at the beginning of the Psalm. But when God pours out the blessing of the gospel in his world, it's not hear me this morning, friend. It's not just so that you get to go to heaven. Man, I knew I was getting no amens on that because everybody wants to go to heaven. <laughs> They're super excited about that. It's going to be great. But the chief end of the gospel is not your citizenship in the new heaven and the new earth. That's an awesome perk, a great benefit. But the great reality of the gospel is that the whole world would see the glory of Jesus Christ. And whether you want to acknowledge it or not, our world has overwhelming markers of the glory of Jesus Christ stamped all over it. And when David writes about this abundance upon abundance and the earth being watered and the sea being still and the mountains being established and the from dawn till sunset joy being declared, friends, there's a global reality to the glory and the benefit of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The difference is, is that when it comes to the end, some will stand in silence before God because they've been judged by the gospel. And some will sing praises to God because they've been redeemed by the gospel. This morning... This morning, the gospel has been clearly presented to you. You must repent of your sins. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You will be saved. God is still in the work of drawing people to himself through the gospel. Praise be to God that there will be a host of people who sing His praises for all eternity for the work He did in His Son, Jesus. Let's pray together. Father God, thank You. Thank You for the glory of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank You for the abundance of blessing that comes through the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank You that Jesus truly is the blessing of the whole earth. Not that all will be saved, but that all will see and must acknowledge at some point in their existence His glory, His majesty, His supreme place in the cosmos. Father, forgive us those who have been redeemed when we turn the light of that glory away from Christ Jesus into any other thing. Let us be the kind of people who from dawn until sunset sing for joy. Because God, you have drawn us near to yourself. And you've done so by covering our sin in the blood of Jesus Christ. In his name we give exalted praise. Amen. I invite you to stand as we sing a song together. Thank you.